Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and you're listening to On The Clock. On The Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to On The Clock. I am Todd Dallas-Lamb, your host. Today, I am happy to have as our guest, Scott Curran, who is the Executive Director for Student Success at Spokane Public Schools in great state of Washington. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Hope you're having a great day. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. I, I am, um, you know, you and I spoke before and I'm really fascinated uh, about the aspect of your job. Um, you've had a, a, a history of working as a counselor. So much uh, of the bonds in education right now uh, that I see, and education is kind of trendy, right? Like there's uh, topics that come and go, some stay with us. Uh, Common Core was all anybody wanted to talk about 10 years ago. No Child Left Behind 20 years ago, right? Um, social and emotional learning is, is really a hot phrase right now. It has been for a while. But career and, and college readiness is also now a, a hot button item. And, and one of the areas that you focus on uh, in your in your role with Spokane Public Schools, is the issue of hope. Tell me a little bit about your history in education and how did you uh, fall on that on that topic of hope, that very important topic. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was a high school counselor for nine years in two surrounding districts around Spokane here, and talking with students one on one and just hearing um, some universal like situations in terms of like what they were going through personally and how it was affecting their ability to be focused in the classroom, be future thinking, and what they wanted to do after high school. Uh, to me, high school from ninth grade to twelfth grade is a pretty big uh, developmental span from going from a middle schooler to then having to make adult decisions about where you want to go for post-secondary education. And a lot of that, I think, for students brings up some anxiety and fear. Um, and I think a lot of decisions being made or not made is because of that anxiety and fear. And so when I started trying to figure out what those barriers are for students, whether they were making it for themselves or whether others are making it for them, I started to resonate, especially for those students with depression issues and or suicidal thinking, that they lacked hope. And I didn't really name it that way until recently in the last year. I was on a statewide webinar with a program called Kitsap Strong, and they were talking about um, the impact of hope science, which has been studied uh, at the post-secondary level, like Arizona State and Oklahoma in particular, that are kind of leading that area. But it hasn't kind of trickled down into, you know, like you're saying, social emotional learning, um, into multi-tiered systems of support, and these other ways that educators and school districts focus on in terms of, you know, vocab and resources. Um, sometimes I think we might overthink it, and, and like, I'm, I'm really kind of wondering, uh, and I, I've said to a few people in our district, how are we constantly and consistently instilling hope in our students? Because if we're not able to answer that question, then I think we're not really doing as much as we could for students when all we care about might be like if they turned in their last assignment in U.S. history, right? That That is important to some teachers, and yet I want to make sure as students experience anxiety and fear now in their future that they actually have resources in their tool belt um, to understand, to uh, encounter, and to like move beyond that. And I think hope's a big tool in tackling any future problem for students. How do you 
identify, what are some of the characteristics that teachers can look for that identify a student that lacks hope? That's a good question because the practical situation for most teachers in the day is whether or not a student's listening to you, <laughs> whether a student's actually turning in their assignments, attending school at all. Um, a lot of districts focus on that early warning system of attendance, behavior, and grades as like the, the benchmark to make sure that students are successful. If kids aren't coming to school, then they're not going to do their homework and they're not going to like show academic progress, which means um, they're not going to be ready for their future steps. But in the moment, I think teachers are keenly aware of, of students that have um, some difficulties, right? If the kid's head's down on, on their desk, if they're acting out in a certain way, um, we might say that they just have a behavior problem in the moment or they're just not coping and dealing with something. Um, but, but they're clearly going through a stressor, right? And that's leading to something that they're doing or not doing in the classroom. And I think that if you were to ask some teachers if they could identify students that don't engage as much in their classrooms, um, that might be the first entry point into this hope conversation. I feel like education, as, as, traditional, as traditionally understood in, in America, we sort of anticipate, you know, 100 years ago that a kid was going to come to class with two parents on their back telling them to do well, that hope would be kind of understood, and, it, and not understood maybe as much as it would be anticipated from a, a teacher's perspective. Uh, I think a lot of us wonder, how can a school actually you, you address the issue of them, of you identifying a hope deficit? What, what is the science saying about what you can do to instill hope where there might be a deficit? Yeah, I think there's adjacent um, terminology that have been hot terms, uh, to your point, in the past, in the recent past, with education like grit and growth mindset. Um, self-efficacy. We use Panorama SEL surveys that have those as subcategories. So we ask students 32 questions as an SEL survey. And then fall and spring, we get to look at those students' answers because they're answering about themselves and their you know, potential ability on a one through five Likert scale on if they give up easily on things, if they believe that they can do something that's difficult, right? And that's some, some valuable information uh, that we can dig into with students um, and have teachers, counselors, building administrators be able to dig on that for a lot of students the one the one difficulty that you know we all need to be aware of is that's one point in time you know like taking a survey once or twice a year can't possibly define what a student's going through at home in school on a regular basis and that's where I think that that focus on SEL as a broad term and our opportunity as educators to really dig in with students individually as and as a group in a classroom needs to be how can we help students build belief in themselves that no matter uh, what they encounter um, personally, that they believe that they can do more uh, than what's happening in the moment. And I think that that future thinking is has been used in the past for suicidal ideation, right? The most difficult thing that a student could be going through in the moment that leads them to think in that way is because they don't have belief that things can get better and they don't have hope that they have the opportunity or skills to make anything be better. And it's difficult with that within that kind of aspect of control. If we're an adolescent student and our parents uh, tell us we have to be a certain way in our household or our household is a certain way with, with physical safety and security, then it's really hard sometimes when the blinders come down to see that anything can be better. Um, and I think that's our opportunity to continually co have conversations with students to say things can get better, not, not to be tone deaf at all, but, right, but to be trauma-informed, to be culturally responsive to the needs of students. 
So I, I talk to a lot of really smart people who focus a lot of their attention on autism, and I, I have this theory, and it's only my theory, but I think that the autism spectrum is much broader and longer and deeper than we think of traditionally. I think I have autistic spectrum uh, aspects. I think my wife does, but we have arguments about that, right? Um, and, but you talk to a lot of these folks who focused on it, and they said, you know, this has always been a problem. Because the question is, are there more autistic kids today than there were 30, 40 years ago? And, and a lot of smart people will tell me that we just didn't identify it. We weren't good at identifying it. Ha has hope always been an issue in education? We just didn't identify it? Is that, or is there something going on in this country that is leading to a lack, a hope deficit that wasn't there 30 years ago? I love that question. I, I think my current stance would be it's always been around. It's just been viewed in different ways. And so timely to a lot of conversations, were there structures that existed that uh, only allowed certain people to have certain hope uh, beliefs about themselves because people, quote unquote, either knew the opportunities that they were given or they knew the opportunities that would be taken away based on systems of power. Um, and, and that that accordingly started to narrow the scope of what, what, what there was to be hopeful for, right? I, I think the paradigm shift that currently exists is kind of like what you hear from different people that everybody deserves a medal or a ribbon, right? And that every student has the opportunity to like own their individuality and, and grow and um, achieve whatever they want to. And I think that that's, that's a difficult stance to take universally, but the concept I think to your question is to identify and really understand students uniquely for where they're at, to then understand how to nudge, how to encourage, how to motivate, uh, to build that hope relative to that student and not a group at large. I think the, you know, you kind of referencing the history of public education and taking a factory model is one size fits all. Like I'm going to deliver this one lesson and you're going to either do it or not do it. And that's going to instantly like develop what pathways are available for you in the future. And I think, thankfully, we're, we're doing a little bit better to uh, to open that conversation, that there's winding paths, that there's ways above and around walls and barriers that exist for students. But the, the hope has to go alongside with that. Not, again, not from a naive perspective, but an opportunity to say, I really want you to have as, as many doors open as possible. And so I need to make sure I build hope so that when you encounter those barriers or you have people in your life telling you you can't do things, that you really, really think through that very deliberately and identify for yourself what you're truly capable of doing in the future. Do you think it's possible, I, you know, 20 years ago, the only, again, uh, buzzwords in education, 20 years ago, all anybody wanted to talk about was accountability. Uh, that a third grader who couldn't read at a fourth grade level does not need to move on to fourth grade until they can read at a fourth grade level. Accountability really kind of demands, doesn't it, uh, that we're going to tell you what you need to learn, and you have to learn it, and if you're not good at learning it, um, you've got a problem. And do you think that that kind of thinking has led to an increased lack of hope? And do you think that we need, and I now sense that we're moving uh, with all the talk of assessment and, and dropping some of these assessment requirements, that we're moving to recognition that you can make a heck of a lot of money in this country by being good at one thing. And, and, and you can stink at four other things that we used to think were vital to a successful American education. Uh, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Do you think that 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 thinking 20 years ago has helped 
reduce hope with regards to I stink at math, so I must not be a very good student. Yeah, and and I think the other, I mean, that's a very, <laughs> a very broad, a whole other conversation for sure. But the the quick version is like just because I don't get a couple units in math doesn't mean I'm bad at math, right? And so the messaging is important around saying, guess what? Your polynomials, like you need a little bit more work on, like you might've gotten a C on the last test, but you're not a C student. And I think the difficulty with public education sometimes is that we assign value to a letter grade and to a GPA and to your point to a test score. And so kids are savvy. Like when we used to give the PSAT for eighth graders, ninth graders, 10th graders, and 11th graders. And from eighth to eleventh, you're not you're not going to potentially grow that much in terms of points, right? And so when students compare with their friends and start to understand like what an average score is at a college that they might want to go to in the future, they start to very quickly understand like what their potential opportunities are based on a score and how that defines them. And so I think that us going us nationally uh, going test optional at colleges has, has, to your question, added a lot more opportunity for hope to be built in kids. Um, this last year, we had a student from one of our um, high fruit juice lunch high schools get admitted to Harvard without an SAT score. And when I looked in the background at his SAT score, I'm not sure it would have fit the middle 50% of accepted students at that school, right? And so having a 5 to 7% acceptance rate, but taking a student because of their personal narrative, because of their activities, because of who they are, and truly a holistic review that colleges promise, um, allows that student an opportunity that they might not have had based on previous accountability indicators, right, that you're kind of touching on in terms of like quantitative metrics and how we like to define each other by numbers. What are other countries, you know, I, the, the fascinating phrase that I took from you to already in this conversation is this, this concept that these universities are studying something called hope science. What is, how's Japan doing with hope? How is Korea, how is Great Britain doing in, in the form of hope? Are they, are, are they seeing similar issues? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think the difficult part is how you scale um, public education in terms of other countries and the resources allocated, which I think is really nuanced when it comes to comparing countries. So super anecdotally, when people compare uh, like Finland to the U.S. in terms of public education. Well, Finland's tax rate is probably like 40% so that they can get free medic medical coverage and free access to post-secondary um, colleges for their students because they believe that education should be supported by citizens versus state by state here and federally, like that you kind of roll the dice on how much public education is supported versus charter versus private versus just our attitudes towards supporting and financially supporting education. Um, and then you, you weigh in cultural aspects too, that yeah, I, you know, I happen to be half Japanese and my mom, you know, has, has relayed to me conversations of her growing up in that educational system and cultural system where shame and guilt is a huge part of motivating uh, students to achieve and, um, and what that means. But what they don't talk about or what you don't hear about is, is uh, adults in Japan or in other countries that don't fit the model culturally or educationally and what happens to them um, because they're outside the the visible perspective of like understanding what happens when you don't graduate similar to our, our system here what happens to a high school dropout are they truly like homeless are they truly begging on the street corner or did they just not fit our system the way it's scaled out for them um, and they had to find a different way. Maybe they're in an apprenticeship. Maybe they're um, 
you know, went through the GED route in a re-engagement program. Uh, and there's those hidden narratives that I think we need to do a better job of capturing because uh, personally with this, with this conversation, students that aren't making it in our high schools right now go to one uh, re-engagement specialist. And I want him to interview all of them and ask them how we could have helped them with their hope in our system. Because uh, I think that's our option to figure out what we need to do better for our students before they start to prescribe their own pathway based on difficulties. Does this problem run across the spectrum or is it micro-focused on uh, poorer kids, kids with uh, one mom in, in the household, or is this something that's just sort of widespread, uh, you find it everywhere? Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty universal. Are there way more barriers and challenges well, through poverty? Absolutely, um, relative to the you know incidents and uh, op opportunities that that don't exist if you don't have access to money. But in the same vein, I would say that there's plenty of opportunities to look at suicide rates that come from you know higher SES, higher socioeconomic status households, um, because their prescribed uh, version of success just looks different, right? Like our, our ability as individuals to measure being happy and successful uh, has, has challenges regardless of our family's money status, right? So you come from a, a very well-to-do family on the, let's say the totally generalizations, the Northeast coast, where it means something to go to private school and getting into like Harvard Business School to get an MBA and work on uh, Wall Street right, as a financial hedge fund in investor. And if you don't do that, then you're not successful. And if you don't earn, you know, more than a million dollars, then you're not successful. That's the part that, that becomes so difficult to, to, like, nail down because everybody's version of that looks different versus somebody that just is happy to live, um, you know, in a rural area and, like, run a family farm and doesn't need as aspects that other people look for in terms of happiness and, like, those material possessions kind of thing. What, tell me a little bit more about mom and dad, Scott. I'm fascinated. Uh, you, your mom was born in Japan. Uh, how, did, how did she find her way? How did you find your way to Spokane? Yeah, she um, she came over for college when she was 18, uh, and she would self-admit that she was a bit of a rebel in doing that because, obviously, in a traditional Japanese family, they want you to stay, um, go to college, go to a very prestigious college, and then, you know, take care of your parents when they're old. And so her, 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 it was just her and her brother. And by her leaving, she put a lot of the onus on her brother to be at home and take care of the broader family. She was supposed to return after college and didn't. She was a little bit disowned from the family for one to two years, according to her <laughs> perspective. And then she uh, met my dad and she became a teacher, educator at the elementary and high school level for um, 30 plus years. And then I just, I just got to see this, um, empowered woman in my household uh, buck the system that she was and the cards that she was dealt uh, to be able to make her own way and redefine like her her successful narrative which I think was really encouraging for me to um, identify like what I wanted to do and be and be able to be an asset and a resource and a, a supporter and, and a cheerleader for anybody that I encountered which is I think what led me into school counseling to do that for students. Where did she move to when she came from Japan? Did she go right to Washington State? She actually went to Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, outside of Portland. She went there for four years, and then she ended up in Spokane. Um, I f I'm f actually forgetting what brought her here, but she got a job in Spokane schools at an elementary school here at Grant and Lincoln Heights, and then she met my dad at a costume party, and the rest is history.
I love it. Well, you know, my mom uh, was the first woman in my entire family to graduate from college at Chico State. Uh, it was called Chico Teachers College back in 1950 when she graduated, and uh, I guess she was a bit of a rebel herself. So uh, we have that in common. Well, Scott, I really can't thank you enough for being on the show. This is a fascinating topic. I, I think we may have, I could go on for hours, but I don't believe humans are capable of listening to an education podcast for more than 20 minutes. So I'm going to thank you for your time today and wish you all the wet. The, the best of luck, and uh, it, you know, would love to meet your mom next time I'm out there. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit www.strategosgroup.com. Please consider subscribing on your podcast streaming platform so you don't miss out on our next episode. And until next time, I'm Todd Dallas Lamb signing off.